Section 10 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Alexander Hamilton, Part 1. A.D. 1757 to 1804. The American Constitution. There is one man in the political history of the United States whom Daniel Webster regarded as his intellectual superior and this man was alexander hamilton not so great a lawyer or orator as webster not so broad and experienced a statesman but a more original genius who gave shape to existing political institutions and he rendered transcendent services at a great crisis of american history and died with no decline of popularity in the prime of his life like canning in england with a brilliant future before him he was one of those fixed stars which will forever blaze in the firmament of American lights, like Franklin, Washington, and Jefferson. And the more his works are critically examined, the brighter does his genius appear. No matter how great this country is destined to be, no matter what illustrious statesmen are destined to arise, and work in a larger sphere with the eyes of the world upon them, Alexander Hamilton will be remembered and will be famous for laying one of the cornerstones in the foundation of the American structure. He was born not on American soil, but on the small West India island of Nevis. His father was a broken-down Scotch merchant, and his mother was a bright and gifted French lady of Huguenot descent. The Scotch and French blood blended is a good mixture in a country made up of all the European nations. But Hamilton, if not an American by birth, was American in his education and sympathies and surroundings, and ultimately married into a distinguished American family of Dutch descent. At the age of twelve he was placed in the counting-house of a wealthy American merchant, where his market ability made him friends, and he was sent to the United States to be educated. As a boy he was precocious, like Cicero and Bacon, and the boy was father of the man, since politics formed one of his earliest studies. Such a precocious politician was he, while a student in King's College, Nibia, in New York, that at the age of seventeen he entered into all the controversies of the day and wrote essays which replying to pamphlets attacking congress over the signature of a westchester farmer were attributed to john jay and governor livingston as a college boy he took part in public political discussions on those great questions which employed the genius of burke and occupied the attention of the leading men of america this was at the period when the colonies had not actually rebelled but when they meditated resistance during the years between 1773 and 1776, when the whole country was agitated by political tracts, indignation meetings, patriotic sermons, and preparations for military struggle. Hitherto the colonies had not been oppressed, they had most of the rights and privileges they desired, but they feared that their liberties, so precious to them and which they had virtually enjoyed from their earliest settlements, were in danger of being wrested away and their fears were succeeded by indignation when the Coercion Act was passed by the English Parliament, and when it was resolved to tax them without their consent, and without a representation of their interests. Nor did they desire war, nor even at first entire separation from the mother country, but they were ready to accept war rather than to submit to injustice, or any curtailment of their liberties. They had always enjoyed self-government in such vital matters as schools, municipal and local laws, taxes, colonial judges and unrestricted town meetings these privileges the americans resolved at all hazard to keep 
some because they had been accustomed to them all their days, others from the abstract idea of freedom which Rousseau had inculcated with so much eloquence, which fascinated such men as Franklin and Jefferson, and others again from the deep conviction that the colonies were strong enough to cope successfully with any forces that England could then command, should coercion be attempted, to which latter class Washington, Pinckney, and Jay belonged, men of aristocratic sympathies, but intensely American. It was no democratic struggle to enlarge the franchise and realize Rousseau's idea of fraternity and equality, an idea of blended socialism, infidelity, and discontent, which united the colonies in resistance, but a broad, noble, patriotic desire, first to conserve the rights of free English colonists, and finally to make America independent of all foreign forces, combined with a lofty faith in their own resources for success, however desperate the struggle might be. All parties now wanted independence, to possess a country of their own, free of English shackles. They got tired of signing petitions, of being mere colonists. So they sent delegates to Philadelphia to deliberate on their difficulties and aspirations. And on July 4, 1776, these delegates issued the Declaration of Independence, penned by Jefferson, one of the noblest documents ever written by the hand of man, the Magna Carta of American Liberties, in which were asserted the great rights of mankind, that all men have the right to seek happiness in their own way, and are entitled to the fruit of their labors, and that the people are the source of power and belong to themselves, and not to kings or nobles or priests. In signing this document, the revolutionary patriots knew that it meant war, and soon the struggle came, one of the inevitable and foreordained events of history, when Hamilton was still a college student. He was eighteen when the Battle of Lexington was fought, and he lost no time in joining the volunteers. Dearborn and Stark from New Hampshire, Putnam and Arnold from Connecticut, and Green from Rhode Island all now resolved on independence, liberty or death. Hamilton left his college walls to join a volunteer regiment of artillery, of which he soon became captain, from his knowledge of military science which he had been studying in anticipation of the contest. In this capacity he was engaged in the Battle of White Plains, the passage of the Raritan, and the battles at Princeton and Trenton. When the army encamped at Morristown in the gloomy winter of 1776 to 1777, his great abilities having been detected by the commander-in-chief, he was placed upon Washington's staff as aide-de-camp with the rank of lieutenant-colonel, a great honor for a boy of nineteen. Yet he was not thus honored and promoted on account of remarkable military abilities, although had he continued in active service, he would probably have distinguished himself as a general, for he had courage, energy, and decision. But he was selected by Washington on account of his marvelous intellectual powers. So, half aide and half secretary, he became at once the confidential adviser of the general, and was employed by him not only in his multitudinous correspondence, but in difficult negotiations, and in those delicate duties which required discretion and tact. He had those qualities which secured confidence, integrity, diligence, fidelity, and a premature wisdom. He had brains and all those resources which would make him useful to his country. Many there were who could fight as well as he, but there were few who had those high qualities on which the success of a campaign depended. Thus he was sent to the camp of General Gates at Albany to demand the division of his forces and the reinforcement of the commander-in-chief, which Gates was very unwilling to accede to, for the capture of Burgoyne had turned his head. He was then the most popular officer of the army, and even aspired to the chief command. So he was inclined to evade the orders of his superior, under the plea of military necessity. 
it required great tact in a young man to persuade an ambitious general to diminish his own authority but hamilton was successful in his mission and won the admiration of washington for his adroit management he was also very useful in the most critical period of the war in ferreting out conspiracies cabals and intrigues for such there were even against washington whose transcendent wisdom and patriotism were not then appreciated as they were afterwards the military services of hamilton were concealed from the common eye and lay chiefly in his sage counsels for young as he was he had more intellect and sagacity than any man in the army it was hamilton who urged decisive measures in that campaign which was nearly blasted by the egotism and disobedience of lee it was hamilton who was sent to the french admiral to devise a cooperation of forces and to the headquarters of the english to negotiate for an exchange of prisoners it was hamilton who dissuaded washington from seizing the person of sir harry clinton the english commander in new york when he had the opportunity have you considered the consequences of seizing the general said the aide what would these be inquired washington why replied hamilton we should lose more than we should gain since we perfectly understand his plans and by taking them off we should make way for an abler man whose dispositions we have yet to learn such was the astuteness which hamilton early displayed so that he really rendered great military services without commanding on the field when quite a young man he was incidentally of great use in suggesting to influential members of congress certain financial measures which were the germ of that fiscal policy which afterwards made him immortal as secretary of the treasury for it was in finance that his genius shone out with the brightest lustre it was while he was the aide and secretary of washington that he also unfolded in a letter to judge duane those principles of government which were afterwards developed in the federalist he had already formed comprehensive opinions on the situation and wants of the infant states and had wrought out for himself a political system far in advance of the conceptions of his contemporaries it was by his opinions on the necessities and wants of the country and the way to meet them that his extraordinary genius was not only seen but was made useful to those in power his brain was too active and prolific to be confined to the details of military service he entered into a discussion of all those great questions which formed the early constitutional history of the united states all the more remarkable because he was so young in fact he never was a boy he was a man before he was seventeen his ability was surpassed only by his precocity no man saw the evils of the day so clearly as he or suggested such wise remedies as he did when he was in the family of washington we are apt to suppose that it was all plain sailing after the colonies had declared their independence and their armies were marshaled under the greatest man certainly the wisest and best in the history of america and of the eighteenth century but the difficulties were appalling even to the stoutest heart in less than two years after the battle of bunker hill popular enthusiasm had almost fled although the leaders never lost hope of ultimate success the characters of the leading generals were maligned even that of the general-in-chief trade and all industries were paralyzed the credit of the states was at the lowest ebb there were universal discontents there were unforeseen difficulties which had never been anticipated congress was nearly powerless a sort of advisory board rather than a legislature the states were jealous of congress and of each other there was a general demoralization there was really no central power strong enough to enforce the most excellent measures the people were poor demagogues sowed suspicion and distrust labor was difficult to procure the agricultural population was decimated there was no commerce people lived on salted meats dried fish baked beans and brown bread all foreign commodities were fabulously dear 
there was universal hardship and distress and all these evils were endured amid foreign contempt and political disintegration a sort of moral chaos difficult to conceive it was amid these evils that our revolutionary fathers toiled and suffered it was against these that hamilton brought his great genius to bear at the age of twenty-three after having been four years in the family of washington as his adviser rather than subordinate hamilton doubtless ambitious and perhaps elated by a sense of his own importance testily took offence at a hasty rebuke on the part of the general and resigned his situation loath was washington to part with such a man from his household but hamilton was determined and tardily he obtained a battalion with the brevet rank of general and distinguished himself in those engagements which preceded the capture of lord cornwallis and on the surrender of this general feeling that the war was virtually ended he withdrew altogether from the army and began the study of law at albany he had already married the daughter of general schuyler and thus formed an alliance with a powerful family after six months of study he was admitted to the bar and soon removed to new york which then contained but twenty-five thousand inhabitants his legal career was opened like that of cicero and erskine by a difficult case which attracted great attention and brought him into notice in this case he rendered a political service as well as earned a legal fame an action was brought by a poor woman impoverished by the war against a wealthy british merchant to recover damages for the use of a house he enjoyed when the city was occupied by the enemy this action was founded on a recent statute of the state of new york which authorized proceedings for trespass by persons who had been driven from their homes by the invasion of the british the plaintiff therefore had the laws of new york on her side as well as popular sympathies and her claim was ably supported by the attorney-general but it involved a grave constitutional question and conflicted with the articles of peace which the confederation had made with england for in the treaty with great britain an amnesty had been agreed to for all acts done during the war by military orders the interests of the plaintiff were overlooked in the great question whether the authority of the congress and the law of the nations or the law of a state legislature should have the ascendancy in other words congress and the state of new york were in conflict as to which should be paramount the law of congress or the law of a sovereign state in a matter which affected a national treaty if the treaty were violated new complications would arise with england and the authority of congress be treated with contempt hamilton grappled with the subject in the most comprehensive manner like a statesman rather than a lawyer and made a magnificent argument in favor of the general government and gained his case although it would seem that natural justice was in favor of the poor woman deprived of the use of her house by a wealthy alien during the war he rendered a service to centralized authority to the power of congress it was the incipient contest between federal and state authority it was enlightened reason and patriotism gaining a victory over popular passions over the assumptions of a state it defined the respective rights of a state and of the nation collectively it was one of those cases which settled the great constitutional question that the authority of the nation was greater than that of any state which composed it in matters where congress had a recognized jurisdiction it was about this time that hamilton was brought in legal conflict with another young man of great abilities ambition and popularity and this man was aaron burr a grandson of jonathan edwards like hamilton he had gained great distinction in the war and was one of the rising young men of the country he was superior to hamilton in personal popularity and bewitching conversation his equal in grace of manner in forensic eloquence and legal reputation but his inferior in comprehensive intellect and force of character hamilton dwelt in the region of great ideas and principles 
Burr loved to resort to legal technicalities, sophistries, and the dexterous use of dialectical weapons. In arguing a case, he would descend to every form of annoyance and interruption by quibbles, notices, and appeals. Both lawyers were rapid, logical, compact, and eloquent. Both seized the strong points of a case, like Mason and Webster. Hamilton was earnest and profound, and soared to elemental principles. Burr was acute, adroit, and appealed to passions. Both admired each other's talents and crossed each other's tracks, rivals at the bar and in political aspirations. The legal career of both was eclipsed by their political labors. The lawyer, in Hamilton's case, was lost in the statesman, and in Burr's in the politician. And how wide the distinction between a statesman and a politician! To be a great statesman, a man must be conversant with history, finance, and science. He must know everything, like Gladstone, and he must have at heart the great interests of a nation. He must be a man of experience and wisdom and reason. He must be both enlightened and patriotic, merging his own personal ambition in the good of his country, an oracle and sage whose utterances are received with attention and respect. To be a statesman demands the highest maturity of reason, far-reaching views, and the power of taking in the interests of a whole country rather than of a section. But to be a successful politician, a man may be ignorant, narrow, and selfish. Most probably he will be artful, dissembling, going in for the winning side, shaking hands with everybody, profuse in promises, bland, affable, ready to do anything for anybody, and seeking the interests in flattering the prejudices of his own constituency indifferent to the great questions on which the welfare of a nation rests, if only his own private interests be advanced. All politicians are not so small and contemptible. Many are honest as far as they can see, but can only see petty details, and not broad effects. Mere politicians, observe I qualify what I say, mere politicians resemble statesmen intellectually, as pedants resemble scholars of large culture, comprehensive intellects, and varied knowledge. They will consider a date or a name or a comma of more importance than the great universe, which no one can ever fully and accurately explore. I have given but a short notice of Hamilton as a lawyer because his services as a statesman are of so much greater importance, especially to the student of history. His sphere became greatly enlarged when he entered into those public questions on which the political destiny of a nation rests, he was called to give a direction to the policy of the young government that had arisen out of the storms of revolution, a policy which must be carried out when the nation should become powerful and draw upon itself the eyes of the civilized world. Just as the twig is bent, the trees inclined. It was the privilege and glory of Hamilton to be one of the most influential of all the men of his day in bending the twig which has now become so great a tree. We can see his hand in the distinctive features of our Constitution, and especially in that financial policy which extricated the nation from the poverty and embarrassments bequeathed by the war, and which on the whole has been the policy of the government from his day to ours. Greater statesmen may arise than he, but no future statesman will ever be able to shape a national policy as he has done. He is one of the great fathers of the Republic, and was as efficient in founding a government and a financial policy, as St. Augustine was in giving shape to the doctrines of the Church in his age and in the medieval ages. Hamilton was therefore a benefactor to the State, as Augustine was to the Church. End of section 10